positive feedback loop. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Positive Feedback Loop podcast. This is your host, Ray. I'm here with our co-host, Stephanie. Hi, everyone. And Luis. Hello. And today we have a very special guest here. So we're here with Carlos Santelli, and we're on 57th Street, also known as Billionaire Row in New York City. And our topic for today is thoughts and trends in venture capital. So, Carlo, you want to tell us a little bit about your work here in venture capital in New York City and Wall Street? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure uh, to be joining you guys today. A uh, bit on my background, I know Ray from high school. We grew up together in Clifton, New Jersey. Uh, my background is took a couple years off, worked for a nonprofit on the West Coast, came back, went to Columbia, New York City. After that, worked in investment banking in New York, uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and then Cannon Fitzgeralds, uh, both on the healthcare side, covering diagnostic companies, biotech companies, uh, healthcare service companies, and across the gamut. I uh, have a healthcare supply chain company that I run with a couple of, of colleagues slash partners, and I also work for a, I like to call it growth capital funds. Under the umbrella of growth capital, you have venture capital, you have growth equity, you have mezzanine debt, and you can even do some senior debt. End of the day, we work with private companies that are growing, that need capital or money to grow and, and take their business to the next level. So that's high level what I do. Uh, Industry-wise, uh, we're industry agnostic. We'll touch everything except for real estate and financial services, but we have investments uh, across the you know industry. We have uh, technology, media companies, healthcare, uh, industrial, consumer retail companies as well. So uh, we really touch a wide range and breadth of companies. What was the name of your company again? Yeah, I work for a place called Stonehenge Capital. Um, has about half a billion dollars in assets under management that we that we manage uh, across a number of funds and family of funds. I noticed that Stonehenge Capital talks a lot about community as one of their focuses on their website. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, so uh, it kind of goes back to the genesis of who Stonehenge is and kind of DNA. We have a lot of relationships with uh, specific states. For example, one of our funds is focused on the state of Connecticut, where we have a deal with the Department of Economic and Community Development in the state of Connecticut, where we're investing our money into small businesses uh, that need capital in the state of Connecticut. And if we hurt, hit, hit certain milestones in terms of our investments with those companies, uh, we get some financial incentives or tax credits, essentially, that we can uh, benefit. And that incentivizes us to make those investments. End of the day, the goal is with those communities in the state of Connecticut and across a couple of other states as well to uh, create jobs and grow the economy in, in the small kind of rural and smaller uh, portions of the state. That's very cool because a lot of times people way outside the realm of venture capital think of iBankers or investors as a totally different breed. But thinking of the connection to community development is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the venture capital, about 40, 45 percent in 2016 of all venture capital investment went into companies based in California. And that's honestly the sexier, cooler kind of place to have a startup, right? In Silicon Valley uh, or just south of San Francisco. But believe it or not, there's smart, innovative companies with great products and services all over the country. So uh, we, we don't focus on the West Coast and we find plenty of great opportunities as well uh, all, all across the country. And Carlo, how long have you been working in venture capital? Would you say? 
Yeah, it's been just over a year, actually. And it's a great segue from kind of like the invest and banking side where you're giving advice. And the day you're giving advice and you're helping companies uh, with transformative transactions. They're selling themselves as an entire company. They're buying other companies. And now we're the ones with actual capital making primary investments into these companies. So overall finance career, it's been about three and a half years. But on the venture capital growth equity side, it's been uh, just over a year. And it's been great learning a lot and a lot more to learn, I think. Have you noticed any changes in the way that venture capital works or operates in the last year or since uh, you've been working in the field overall, just investment banking? What are the biggest differences between that and what you're doing now? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the first question in terms of trends in the industry. First of all, there's a record level of dry powder in the private equity venture capital world. And when I say dry powder, that means there's these venture capital funds sitting on a lot of cash that needs to be deployed. Uh, not just in venture capital, also the private equity world. Private equity is, you know, investment funds, pools of capital where they're buying entire companies. Venture capital, they're, you know, making investments and buying minority stakes in companies. And what happens is you have more and more money, capital, chasing a finite number of companies and deals. And what happens is the price of these companies and the opportunity to invest into these companies is getting bid up. So the value of these companies are jumping up uh, to levels that five, ten years ago uh, would be not quite unmanageable, but it's definitely higher than it's been in the past. That's why you're seeing right now we have two, over 200 unicorns across the globe. Unicorns being right, a private company worth over a billion dollars. Uh, the number one of those is Uber, but you can name a lot of them, right? Airbnb, Uber, there's a ton of those guys out there. Uh, so we're seeing very high valuations. So from a venture capital perspective, it's tough to find a good deal that isn't a valued uh, too high or too rich of a multiple or the valuation isn't too high. So a lot of our work is is business development, finding a good opportunity where 15 other venture capital funds aren't trying to throw their money at them. And that happens, right? If you have a great product, you have a great service in a great industry and you have a great management team, uh, you're going to attract a lot of venture capital money if if you kind of have check all the boxes and are in the right place, just because there's such a plethora of money out there right now. So as a CEO or as a you know entrepreneur, this is kind of a great time to get some funding and and you know grow your business if if uh, you're in that category. The, the rise of the unicorns has been something that's been documented for the last decade or so. You know the explosion in small companies that, especially tech companies, that have ballooned in value uh, very quickly. Have you noticed any particular fears of there being a bubble around them? Or is that, or the good times just expected to continue? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, right? What's the value of something? And to me, the core of finance, a lot of it is value. How much is this company worth? And if you think it's worth more than the market or other people think it's worth, uh, you can make a lot of money. And that's how hedge funds do make a lot of money, right? And venture capital funds do as well. There is arguably a bubble in the tech world. Public markets drive, and there's a huge... Uh, interplay between the public markets and the private markets and the public markets being stocks. Stocks are trading at all-time highs in terms of their uh, enterprise value to EBITDA, enterprise value to their earnings. But yeah. Thank you. That's actually, we asked a similar question actually to our previous guest that we had who was talking about entrepreneurship and his answer was very similar along your lines. So it's it's going to be interesting seeing how this develops in the field over the next decade or so as tech becomes more and more powerful, especially with additional automation and more companies jumping on that. So it's going to be interesting to see whether our bubble does develop and we're back to the late 90s or we're moving on to a weird world of tech dominance. 
Right, exactly. I think th- there's no denying the fact that there is an intersection between technology and everything, right? The intersection between technology and communication has been happening, obviously, for the last 10 to 15 years with the advent of the internet and all that. But even the advent or the intersection of technology with everything else, every other walk of life, from the obvious things to the unobvious things, like architecture or and uh, uh, you know asteroid mining and, and agriculture. So basically, that is kind of the trends of what we're seeing in this world. And um, if if you look at the companies that are being uh, you know funded by these venture capital funds, it has everything to do with technology intersecting with whatever walk of life uh, that these companies are currently operating in. Some argue that every company is essentially just a software company that in, implements and overlays that technology and that software into uh, the problems that they're already solving. Do you find that there's a problem with categorizing technology as a sector in itself at the moment? So that's there's a technology category when you look at different types of companies. Isn't that true? Yeah, you could say that. Obviously, SaaS, you know, software as a service, uh, huge part of what's going on out there. But again, I think every industry is overlaying technology to advance and make the processes in that industry more efficient. There's some hot areas, obviously, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality. Those are kind of the hot uh, kind of ticket items right now in terms of industries and sectors that are getting funded, number one, and also that these tech companies are, are becoming being acquired by these larger kind of other tech companies out there. So that's what's also drawing not only the talent, but also drawing the kind of the capital and, and the interest from investors as well that kind of comes with it. I was reading an article from last year in Financial Times about dead unicorns. I think they call them like unicorn corpses, and they've got some different unicorpses maybe. Financial Times talks about this term, the dead unicorn, and that tech startups may have an IPO, but then we have these failures. And uh, in one paragraph, there's this reference to investors just not understanding the tech well enough. So they've done their anal- their financial analysis, but they don't understand the tech necessarily. And so their investments can't be as smart as they would have been otherwise. Is that really true in your mind? Is it a is it an, a tech understanding issue? Yeah, there's an interesting play going on, uh, kind of the whole investor, private equity, venture capital world. Like I said, there's a record amount of dry powder right now out there. So you have a lot of people chasing deals. And there's, I guess there's a, the, the smart investors who really understand if it's on the healthcare side, the, the, the healthcare of it, the biology of it, if it's on the tech side, the technology of it. And then you have kind of generalist investors who don't really understand it and kind of just chasing a deal if it kind of just checks all the right boxes. I think if you're a strong uh, company with all the right fundamentals, a great product and a great management team, you're going to have the pick of the lot. And many times uh, the advantage goes to those you know, industry-focused and tech-focused venture capital funds. A lot of uh, huge trend as well in uh, corporate venture capital funds. Google has their own investment arm. Uh, one's called it's called GV as their growth equity arm. Pretty much every tech company out there has their own venture capital arm for two reasons. One, they're saying so. Google says, "Hey, we'll give you fifty million dollars in a growth equity investment, but you have access to all fifty thousand Google employees." And what company out there would not want access to all fifty thousand Google employees who might be the best, you know, arguably the best in their field and what they're doing, right? So Google has a huge advantage in, in getting access to these fantastic deals when other guys who just don't have that value add, they just have money, uh, just can't get a part of those deals. What was the second thing 
that you said there was two things oh that's one the other thing being that just access and getting kind of their ear to the street on young developing companies in their space in the past uh, a company like google they would you know kind of hear about you know young startups and and other companies kind of in their space there that potentially might compete with them in the future they keep an ear to the street five ten years down the road they like the company they acquire it and sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't work out they figured that this is a much more risk-averse way of getting involved with these companies. Make a small investment in the company, get involved, be on their board of directors, have some uh, working relationship with these small companies, figure out which ones are really the real deal and which ones are just kind of uh, just smoke and mirrors, and then you can acquire them later. Um, so basically, it's it's another way of going about that. Hmm. That's that's interesting. I think you were talking about how important the technology is becoming in all these different industries and how important I think the data is becoming. So access to not only Google's employees and keeping the, your ears on the street, but also the data, the access to their existing sets of data from consumers, maps, all these different things. I think that's also uh, huge nowadays. The ability to access you know, all the rides that Uber has, that's a big deal, I think, for any startup. Right, absolutely. Uh, I think in general, Silicon Valley is a very small world. There's a very close working relationship with these tech companies, the startups, the private startups, and then the whole venture capital world. Uh, it's not just necessarily having the right idea, the right management team, but also kind of who you know and the connections you can make. Uh, there's joint ventures between all these guys. I think the best example is in the self-driving world, right? You have the big car manufacturers, you have the OEMs, you have these tech companies uh, and then the ride-sharing companies. There's a huge interplay between these guys. There's a tangled web between uh, the joint ventures that these guys have going on, and that's you know, a classic example of kind of uh, what's going on out there. You bring up how important it is to know the right people. It's not just the idea that something, you know, you should have the right product or service and it must be working properly, but knowing the right people is more than half the battle, would you say? What do you think? I wouldn't say more than half the battle, but hey, it's, it's like anything in this world. You gain a stamp of credibility if you've worked with people that an investor might know. Uh, you come from the same institution. You worked at credible, uh, big-name uh, tech companies in the past. That just adds stamps of credibility to you. There's so many great opportunities out there. It's kind of an easy way just to filter uh, the great opportunities from the things that may not be as good. In fact, there's some venture capital funds, they won't even talk to you unless there's a warm connection there or you were introduced. There's no way of contacting them. Uh, and that's just kind of filter out kind of the, the not as good as opportunities, I think. Hmm, it's very interesting. And with that, I think we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we get back, we'll talk more about venture capital and how to gain credibility in the industry. I gotta find my true unicorn. I gotta find her somewhere. She's out there. I know she's looking for me. I'm looking for her. Where is my unicorn? Has this been you? Are you also looking for the unicorn of your dreams? There's not many of them out there. And every time you look online, it's just another horse with a horn attached to their head. So come to Verified Horn, where you know that all the unicorns are looking for you. Every time you go to Verified Horn, we have gone through the research and made sure that every one of our members are true mythical creatures. Every one of them a unicorn looking for love. So come to Verified Horn and find the love that's mythical.
Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that commercial break. This is the PFL Podcast. And we're returning to our conversation with Carlos Santelli and discussing different aspects of venture capital. Uh, before the commercial, Carlos, we were talking about how important it is to know the right people and things like that. And you also want to be able to work with fun people in a way, right? So have you worked with some companies that you th- that you personally thought were fun to work with? Do you uh, Can you recall some? some investments you might have made or different teams or management teams you might have interacted with that you thought were just good guys or good good gals yeah or teams that you might look forward to working with in case that something in the future that you think might be more a lot of fun well the team on this podcast you guys would be a fun guy people to work with going for and and you are if you want to throw hey if you want to throw some money our way i'm not opposed yeah it's true yeah, I think a big part of the process, not just from our side here at Stonehenge Capital, but any other fund, they're looking for quality management team. Not necessarily a seasoned veteran, but someone who is a quality manager who has a skill set that can take their company and build it to the next level. If you're going around hand-holding these, this management team or these founders and really walking them through step-by-step of the process, that's a little bit more than most venture capital funds are looking to do. Because if you have 20 different portfolio companies, now all of a sudden you get your hands ro- sleeves rolled up on 20 different companies. There are some venture capital funds out there. That is their style. Um, and, and they enjoy doing that. But us, and I think most funds, would prefer to find a fantastic management team who, yeah, will sit on the board of directors. If they have some issues, they come to us. But day-to-day operations is very much in their hands. So that's something they look for. I, I would caveat that with, it's not necessarily someone who has a lot of experience. I think that's more on the private equity side. They'll look for someone who's been in the industry for 30 years, but there's not a direct correlation, I think, with experience and talent, right? Because if you looked at Mark Zuckerberg when he founded Facebook, he didn't have a lot of experience, but he had a lot of talent. So there's a big difference there. Uh, and that goes for a lot of the you know, unicorns and Snapchats and, and uh, Ubers of the world. These guys were very talented, not necessarily experienced, but very talented individuals. So that's what we're looking for uh, from our side. Have you seen size to be a difference? I'm thinking of an interview that Mark Benioff had at the World Economic Forum in Davos last year, where he said he wasn't looking to, or Salesforce wasn't looking to acquire large unicorns, but they were looking at smaller, smarter investments. Is there a correlation of size to success? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of that specific uh, example that you gave, um, you know, if you have a, a platform like uh, Salesforce and you're able to acquire smart, great technology, proprietary technology from these smaller startups, you have the distribution capabilities where you can just take that technology and distribute it to everybody. There's a lot of companies out there. That's exactly their business model, right? They have the distribution. They acquire, if it's a consumer retail business, acquire a great product and they have the distribution all across the globe where they can basically take that product and, and, and funnel it through all their distribution channels. So I think that's what Salesforce there was alluding to. Uh, but in terms of just general size and uh, you know comment on that, uh, you know, it, great companies come in all shapes and sizes. There's a difference between a poorly run company and just a small company. Uh, we work with companies with 10, 11 individuals, and the CEO is very str- stretched out, uh, stretched pretty thin. Uh, I think what we're looking for is the ability for them to scale that business. Can the CEO build a strong management team around him to scale this business so he's not involved with every single client, every single day-to-day interaction? That's uh, you know taking the company 
from point A to point B. That's something that we look for. And that's more on the growth equity side, which growth equity is, hey, you have a great product or service and it's accepted by the market. We know it works. You're making money. Now, how do we take that to the next level and make that a, a 10 times a fold bigger company? That's, that's honestly more of what we focus on here at, at Stonehenge Capital, growth equity. That's interesting. It sounds like the key skill that you're looking for would be delegation. The ability for the CEO or its management team to delegate the work that needs to be done in order to run a successful company, that ability is really the key driver for your decisions. Yeah, it's, you know, being able to delegate. Also, again, just build a strong management team around uh, that core individual. Uh, one company we're about to make a, a investment into in the next two or three weeks here we talked to their five largest customers and a lot of them kept saying how important the CEO was and how involved he was and how much of a rock star he was. Thus, that's a great thing, great founder, but it's also an issue in that how can he detract himself from being involved with every single business? Because if he's involved in answering emails at 4 a.m. in the morning right now with his 20 clients, what's going to happen when he has 100 clients? He's not going to be able to keep up with the workflow. So they're actually re-triggering and refiguring their business model to make it more scalable and less high-touch uh, business with their current customers, which is great. That's exactly what we're looking for, and that's what can help them take it to the next level. I noticed that you went to Columbia, and I'm a fellow Ivy Leaguer, so I, of course I noticed that. And right. uh, you studied economics. What kind of courses helped you in your career? Uh, liberal arts college, you know, I didn't, I never took a finance class while I was at Columbia, all economics. If I had to redo it, I would take a, a more concrete discipline. In that, you know, macroeconomics, if you just read the Wall Street Journal every day for three years, you're going to learn pretty much all the fundamental principles of uh, macroeconomics. Uh, I don't necessarily apply what I learned in college every single day. It was more the connections I made there, the learning process, the uh, just kind of a whole educational process in general, which kind of prepared me uh, for uh, my career now. Um, you know, I think if my little brother's in college now, I recommend to him, hey, take computer science. It's, the technology is, uh, you know, overlapping every industry, every industry, everything people are doing. That's something that would definitely give you a leg up no matter what you do, what field you get into. So uh, I enjoyed my time at Columbia, absolutely. So you've mentioned that technology has changed the way that every industry is kind of operating. So how has technology have changed the way that venture capital is operating? How has it changed the way that you analyze companies, uh, address their problems, uh, identify disruptive innovation? How does that all change with time? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I would start with the way uh, venture capital funds and we're not just talking venture capital funds, we'll just say overall investment funds, which could be hedge funds, private equity funds, venture capital, growth equity, um, identify their potential targets. Uh, there's a great platform called CV Insights. I don't know if you guys have ever come across them. Um, connected with Crunchbase. They put out an incredible email every single day with in-depth articles, in-depth uh, infograms about different industries and what's going on in those industries and how, again, the technology is kind of interplaying with what's going on in that industry. I read that every single day and that's a dearth of knowledge and information. Uh, they'll put out data like, hey, you know, the average time between a Series A and Series B round is 17 months and 14 days. So you look at a company, hey, they raised their money 
15 months ago, that means maybe on average, they're probably looking to raise another round of capital. And if you're one of the first investors to get in there and start building a relationship with those guys before they're about to raise their next round of capital, then you stand a better chance of getting in on that deal or you know being a part of that deal. So I think the real the name of the game these days with so much capital floating around, so much money out there, is just getting in with the right companies and, and, and sourcing great investment opportunities. That goes across any investment manager or any investment platform. And that's the same with us as well. So a lot of effort put into finding proprietary deals uh, that are good investments and good companies to work with. I have a question, Carl. What would you recommend for an entrepreneur looking for the right investor? How do you identify the right investor? Yeah, from the other side, again, I think if you check all the right boxes, I'm happy to get into what those right boxes are as well. We could talk a little bit about that. Then because there's such a large amount of money kind of floating around right now, it's about finding investors, two things. One, who will advise you and sit on the board and play somewhat of an active role in making the right connections for you, introducing you to other industry players and the right people to grow your business. That's number one. Number two, be someone with industry experience who's been around the industry for a long time. There's generalist funds out there, like to be frank, like Stonehenge Capital who invest across all industries. Uh, and then again, you, get, you have investment funds who focus specifically on cloud computing and you have guys who focus specifically on blockchain startup companies. Those, if you have a great blockchain startup uh, and you're gonna make it big in that world, you wanna get in with people who number one can advise you specifically in that niche industry and number two, give you connections and make those connections in that specific niche industry. And if you're the right company, you're gonna you're gonna uh, have plenty to choose from if if you play your cards right. So, Carlo, I've known you for a while, and I know that you're quite an adventurous guy, and you've been to every state in the United States, I believe, by car. Is that true? That's right. Well, not by car. Hawaii. We had to fly there, but yeah, that's true. Yeah, but you drove to Alaska. Is that right? That's right. You didn't yeah. use. I'm shocked you didn't use the car from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and just kind of flew there. <laughs> <laughs> that was the original plan. We had to go with plan B. And Carla, aside from that, did you did you remember the time where you broke a world record? That's right. That's another thing. Um, yeah, I set the Guinness World Record for the longest tennis match back in 2010. Uh, it was 38 hours, 2 minutes, and 9 seconds. Did it with my good friend Dan Burns, which you know, who, who you yeah. know very well. I know Dan. Um, it was great. You know, when I was a little kid, my mom bought me the Guinness Book World Record, and I told my mom, I'm going to be in this book one day. Watch. And I tried a bunch of different things, and eventually the whole tennis thing worked out. And uh, it was great. It was a great little project. Something uh, I can, I guess, use as a story for the rest of my life. So, so who cool. won the tennis match? It was a tie, actually, believe it or not. I, I think I could have took him at the end, but it, we kind of had this cordial, let's just end this as a tie type thing. Uh, but I had him. If we, uh, we might play it again, and I'm going to have to beat him this time. <laughs> Do we have to interview him to get his side of the story? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the official, that's the official story that we're going with. So, Yeah, but it was a tie, believe it or not. I wonder if it's still the existing world record. It's been broken, yeah, a number oh, of times. Yeah, okay. but if you guys are in the market to play some tennis this weekend, we could uh, we could take it back. <laughs> I we're used to play tennis a lot. To, I will I will point out I have played tennis with an eighty year old grandmother and lost. So <laughs> watch out, watch out. It's not about being good; it's about playing long. So you've traveled all around the United States. Hopefully, a lot of it's fun, but some of them may be for work as well. And you've talked a little bit about the geography 
of investing, that there are 45% of this investment activity is happening in Silicon Valley or in California at least. And we talked also about kind of this focus on the community in Connecticut that what do you think the geography of venture capital is? Are there some hot spots in the United States? Are you often looking at certain places for inspiration? Yeah, good question. Up until maybe six or seven years ago, Silicon Valley has always been number one, no question about it, the undisputed champion. Uh, six or seven years ago, it was Boston uh, that attracted the most venture capital. That switched over to New York. Uh, we have Silicon Alley here in New York, definitely a growing kind of robust community here in New York City, despite being in the shadow of the corporate law firms and the, the larger investment banks. I think New York's going to be the financial capital world for a long time, but there's still, again, a robust kind of growing venture community here. I'm fairly plugged in into the community here or trying to be as plugged in as I can. Uh, yeah, so you got New York, you know, honestly, every major city, Dallas, Chicago, Miami. I have a couple buddies that I started at Bank of America with a couple years ago. They have a venture capital fund up in Harlem, investing in urban startups up in the Harlem part of New York City. So I think if you're an entrepreneur with a great idea or you know business or service uh, that you're developing, there's plenty of opportunities, no matter what city geographically you are, where you're kind of located, uh, to find the right investors to help you kind of take it to the next level if that's what you want to do. So I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it's been interesting watching Salt Lake City start to be considered Silicon Slopes as right. a kind of a homage to Silicon Valley and also to the skiing in oh. Utah, the Great Slopes. Anybody who's from there is, hopefully has skied. And just interesting to see in some of these places, especially in Utah, where the real estate is inexpensive. And so you see a lot of startups finding space in a place that's not as expensive as Silicon Valley or, or Boston or New York City. It gets back to kind of your, your two-sided, the two sides of what a good company needs from an investor. For this good advice, an investor that will be there for them, but also the networking part, that, that networking is critical for the success of a startup. And how if you want to be in a place that's inexpensive like Utah, you have to have a good enough network, a healthy enough network. And it seems like that has happened. So I wonder if, if more places will pop up with a kind of a, a lower price point on real estate, uh, that they're not necessarily gigantic cities, but places with a healthy network and yet easier for a startup to thrive in so that they're not paying through the nose for a small amount right. of office space in New York City. Yeah, I mean, it's no secret that the most of the job growth in the United States of America comes from small businesses as opposed to the Fortune 500, right? That's where a lot of that's driven. So states and, and cities are, are, you know, know that interplay and dynamics going on. So they're incentivizing small, you know, businesses and uh, startups to come there. Uh, there's another interplay going on that, you know, retail space and malls in America are shutting down in droves. Large big box retailers are shutting down. So now there's a crisis in the real estate industry. We have huge, vast retail space that's opening up, and we have startups that we want to incentivize to go there. So you're seeing places like New York City that they're basically switching that retail space over to open up an incubation facility or open up some uh, kind of like a WeWork type situation where you can rent out for very cheap uh, these small businesses to grow and kind of get their, their footing. 
Uh, that's definitely happening in New York City, and I think it's happening all across the United States. So it's an exciting time. Yeah, it's an exciting time for a lot of these guys. I wanted to ask, there have been a few venture capitalists in pop culture. You know, you have shows like Shark Tank. Uh, I think in the UK, I think they have Dragon's Den. You have Silicon Valley. Are Are there any of these that you particularly think are a good representation of how venture capitalists work? And if not... What are some things you could say to people who this is their only image of a venture capitalist to basically, this is not correct. Here's what actually happens. Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of these athletes, uh, celebrities, actors kind of coming into the venture world. We've come across a number of these uh, institutions. One, Dugout Ventures with, you know, Barry Larkin and David Ortiz and Nolan Ryan. Those are the kind of founding LPs. They generally partner with someone who's been in the industry a little bit longer, uh, and we've come. They've sent us a couple of deals that, that firm specifically. I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you can put the brand name of some of these, for example, these great uh, Major League Baseball all-star players behind a uh, baseball startup, it's easy to get that product out there to the market, right? Uh, branding is is everything when it comes to retail and consumer retail. So you throw Nolan Ryan and Barry Larkin's name on a new baseball batter, a new uh, you know, baseball mitt or whatever else is out there, and it's gonna it's gonna make sales. So uh, you're seeing a lot of NBA players, right? Kobe Bryant also started his own venture capital fund not that long ago. Carmelo Anthony. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense when you're kind of like a consumer-facing uh, business and you're consumer-facing uh, celebrity or, or personality. Uh, there's a huge, you know, synergies that can come out of that type of relationship. But do you agree with the? portrayal of investment capital in HBO Silicon Valley, for example, specifically. I don't know if you watched that show or not. Never seen it. Never seen it. Okay. Have you ever seen Shark Tank? Shark Tank? Yeah, Shark Tank's a great show. I haven't seen too much of it, but like my mother, for example, when she asked me what I do on a day-to-day basis, I say, well, essentially Shark Tank, not quite as intense and definitely more of a drawn-out process. We're definitely dive deeper into the due diligence, but net-net, that's kind of what we're doing. We're looking for great companies that we can invest into give them some money and help them grow them to the next level you know shark tank's been a great kind of pr piece for the industry i think a lot of people have a better understanding of what the whole finance venture capital world does do on a day-to-day basis you know it comes with pros and cons but i think overall it's been kind of positive for the overall industry but what about like a character like mr nice guy who's seen as ruthless many times and is just trying to make a quick buck he's not really interested in the people as much as he is about just making more money. Like, do you find that to be a negative portrayal or is it just kind of like a one case deal? I think there's some bad apples absolutely in the industry. You'll see that in, in every industry, but overall, overwhelming majority is uh, venture capital funds and investors. They're facilitating, right? They're facilitating these businesses to fund themselves either through the research and development stage or the market acceptance stage or growth stage to get this product or service to the next level and to, to, to the market, to the consumer, or to the business who's buying it. On the tech side, that's great. You're making people's lives easier and more efficient. I've worked on the healthcare side before where uh, you have a new therapeutic uh, that can save lives, right? And can and cure disease. Uh, and that's something we help fund. One of our portfolio companies does exactly that. And we sit on their board and we've given them the money to fund the research and developments to get them to the next level. Well, Carlo, this has been really great. I just want to thank you again. This has been an awesome experience for all of us, I think, and hopefully to our listeners as well. 
uh, and I just want to congratulate you on your on your progress here at Stonehenge, trying to, as you said, save people's lives, facilitate deals, make progress, change the world. I, I'm loving it. It's awesome. And yeah, any last words you want to give the audience? Thanks for having me. Hope this was informative and talk to you guys soon. All right. And again, thanks, everyone. Uh, we encourage you to follow us. We're on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud. Go to our website. We're changing the world like you guys are. One follower at a time. Let's do it together. Thank you very much. And as always, stay crazy.